How can you not be romantic about baseball? Bringing a high drive to left. This baby's way back. It is out of here. I don't believe what I just saw. Coswell slashes one foul. Oh, that hit a bird, and it bounces back into fair territory. Oh, I got to I got to check the rule book on this one, folks. I'm too drunk taste this chicken. Our ass is in the jackpot now. You're listening to Booze and Baseball. There's 50 feet of crap. And then there's us. A baseball first podcast. Sort of. Featuring Derek Johnson. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. And Dusty Baker. I heard that. Dynamite drop-in money. That broadcast school has really paid off. So sit back and enjoy the talk around the diamonds with a cold one in hand. Today's secret ingredient is... I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotch has got scotch. Here it goes down. Down into my belly. What's happening? Welcome into another edition of Booze and Baseball. This is episode number 27 with Dusty Baker. I'm Derek Johnson, and we just had the MLB All-Star break, the Home Run Derby, All-Star game, the whole shebang. We get ready for the second half of the season, which I always thought was kind of weird because it's not actually a perfect 50-50 split, but good enough. It's the second half of the season. So first thing first, Dusty, what are you drinking tonight? Yeah, well, you know, we have to keep it classy during the All-Star break. This is the second time I'm rolling around wine. I'm also uh, currently at my parents' home. This is the last week uh, that they will be living in uh, the hometown that Derek and I grew up together in. And so uh, to celebrate and also kind of kind of a sorrowful time, it's, it's weird feelings. But, you know, you can always drink those feelings away with wine. So I have uh, a Mountain Zinfandel uh, from Opolo, which is in Paso Robles. And uh, yes, I pronounced that correctly. Paso Robles. A lot of people think it's Paso Robles. That included me until I actually moved to the Central Coast. And uh, I was quickly acquainted to the fact that I was pronouncing it incorrectly. Although, yes, the Spanish pronunciation, you would think it'd be Robles. That will piss off a lot of people that live in Paso Robles and Opolo, one of the best wineries out there. That is what I am drinking today. How about you, DJ? Well, I'm going to start calling Victor Robles, Victor Robles. There you go. Yeah, Victor Robles. <laughs> I am drinking a Free State, which is a Lawrence local brewery since 1989. It's the Ad Astra Amber Ale. And Ad Astra, it's kind of a popular saying. People will get it like tattooed on them or something. It is Latin for to the stars. It's, this beer is dedicated to the free thinkers who embrace our region's big land and even bigger sky. It's a delicious beer. I love my ambers, and this one is one of the better ones. What did you use right there to open it up? For those of you listening right now, Derek had some really cool bottle opener, and I, I kind of want to – or can opener, I should say. I want to see that again. Oh, I used this before. It's a Thor hammer. <laughs> okay, so – Explain it to me. Where did you find this Thor hammer? Because that is one of the coolest things that I think I've ever seen. We found it online on like social media and it was like 10 bucks or something. I sent it to my wife, Stacy, and she was just like, oh my goodness, I'm buying that right away. Thor is her favorite Marvel character. So she wanted to buy it and I have actually been probably getting more use out of it than she has. That's that's a, honestly one of the coolest things that I think I've seen you use, uh, especially on this show. So bravo. I'm almost more interested in the Thor hammer than I am the beer itself. But uh, <laughs> hey, cheers to uh, episode 27. 
Very, uh, very happy to be back with you in the second half, as Derek mentioned, uh, post-All-Star break. That's right. And episode number 27, I believe that's the number that Vladimir Guerrero wore. So that's kind of a cool thing. But the throwback stat that we have isn't from when Vladimir Guerrero hit the ball to the glove at AT AT&T at the time, now Oracle Park at the Home Run Derby. It's from the 1946 MLB All-Star Game. Ted Williams, in the All-Star Game against All-Star Pitchers, goes four for four with two home runs, five driven in, four runs scored. Unbelievable. And this made me think of something. If you could have one hitter's best season, so I think Ted Williams would be in the discussion if you look at a couple different years for him. I think the one I might take, 1941 maybe, if you could go back and take one hitter's best season for a fantasy league, what guy, what year are you taking? Yeah, you know, I had to really think about this one. And before I answer, I want you to answer because there's a chance we may have the same answer, and I'd rather you take it first because I have a backup. So you go ahead first. Okay, I'm assuming you're talking about Barry Bonds. There you go. Yes, I assumed that was where we were going, but you you go ahead, steal that, say the numbers, and I'll give you my backup to that. 2001 Barry Bonds. Honestly, you could pick, like, multiple Barry Bonds years. If you wanted, you could argue 2004 Barry Bonds. He had less home runs, less driven in, but – He wound it up with the same amount of runs. He wound it up with a higher average by about 35 points, about a 90-point higher on-base percentage. So if you want it and a better OPS, you could argue that. But the 2001 season, you get 73 home runs, which think about it. If a fantasy season is – it's anywhere between, I don't know, like 22 to 25 weeks, somewhere in that range. You're getting – that includes the playoffs – you're getting three home runs marked down a week from Barry Bonds, 137 RBIs. Yeah, that's insane. another five or so RBIs every week. 13 steals. So he's giving you steals that year as well. He led the MLB in walks as he did for five straight seasons and for, I don't know, maybe like 12 seasons total, somewhere around there. He still hit 328, so you're getting average. 515 on base percentage over half the time on base. 863 slugging. That feels like the one to me. And the other thing that's that's crazy here, like we always think about all the time, oh, this hitter's 30 years old now, or he's 32 years old. He's past his prime. Barry Bonds was 36 years old in that 2001 season. That is unbelievable. The, the fact that he stole bases back in the day too, I think is one that's pretty interesting because obviously everybody thinks about Barry Bonds uh, for the power that he had, but he actually had quite a bit of speed, as Derek had mentioned there. Uh, for the backups, I mean, you know, there's so many – players, Derek, that have gone through the history of this game that have had just unreal, like mind-blowing seasons. You could throw out the names of Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa back when they had the home run uh, back and forth battle, you know, and then you could go all the way to Babe Ruth. I mean, those are some that I could list that are pretty basic. Uh, You know, just in honor of number 44, I am going to throw out Hank Aaron as one of the two. There are two two seasons that in particular that I really – you know, just kind of want to highlight. And Hank Aaron, he had a lot of years in which he hit 44 home runs, uh, which is kind of amazing. But there was a year in which he actually hit 47. Uh, Now, I know that's not like mind-blowing, like hearing Barry Bonds, uh, what he was able to accomplish. But in 1971, and at the age of 37, Hank Aaron hit 47 home runs, had 118 RBIs, had a 669 slugging percentage. I mean, that is absolutely unbelievable considering the fact that most of these guys, you know, you talk about prime, uh, he was out of his prime. Now, he was the third in the MVP rankings, and the other name I'm going to throw out there, that was in honor of number 44, of course. That's what they did during the All-Star break. Uh, I want to go to 1985. 
Uh, and that is when Ricky Henderson was age 26. Uh, not the most stolen bases he's ever had. In fact, 50 less than the amount that he's had total, which was in 1982. Uh, if you don't remember correctly, he had 130 stolen bases in 1982, but he also hit 267 and his slugging was 382. So unless you're just wanting to win a stolen bases league, maybe not the best here. He did have 116 walks, which is pretty remarkable. But in 1985, what I loved about Ricky Henderson's season, he had 24 home runs, which is not mind-blowing by any means, but for a guy that was known for his speed, 24 is a pretty decent number. He had 28 doubles had 80 stolen bases. He also had 99 walks. So he was getting on base at a percentage of 419. And then on top of that, he has a 516 slugging percentage. So when you talk about putting it all together, that's one of the most impressive seasons for me just because across the board, I mean, nobody's going to sit back and be upset with 24 home runs. And then when you add 80 stolen bases to that, when you add the on-base percentage, when you add the slugging, that's honestly, for fantasy purposes, as well-rounded as you could possibly ask for. Uh, so, yeah, Ricky Henderson, age 26, and uh, Henry Hank Aaron, age 37 seasons. Those are two that I wish I could have on my fantasy roster. And, of course, as I mentioned, there's plenty of other players out there that deserve the recognition. But for, for across the board, those were two interesting ones to me. The Henderson one is cool, too, because you basically lock up steals, and then you can focus on every other category. Exactly. they should add. I just had this idea – why have they not – maybe they actually already have. I just haven't heard about it. They have an OPS stat where it takes into account – or not even OPS. I guess it could be OPS or OBP um, – where you take into account in your slugging percentage, if you steal a base, like that, that counts as – if you get a single and a steal, it counts as a double to whatever that's, the stat is. That's well, actually funny that you out, mentioned that. Yeah, if you get thrown out on the base paths, then it's like you didn't even get a hit to begin with. About three years ago, I was thinking about something very similar to that. And I was stuck in a Starbucks. I was supposed to be applying for jobs, looking for other opportunities. Obviously didn't do that. Instead, I, I did a study on the Philadelphia Phillies of 2008 uh, because I thought that was one of the best lineups that I had ever seen. Uh, added the Yankees from the three years they won the World Series. Added the Dodgers of 2017, the Astros of 2017. And to, to sum this up, I actually found a way to come up with a stat where you acquire bases. So it wasn't the idea necessarily of getting a hit per se. It was acquiring bases, including stolen bases. Uh, I called it offensive efficiency. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll write an article to kind of revisit this because what was crazy to me was that I kept on getting the number 0.35 for all of these championship teams. Like it was, it blew my mind. Every championship team had the same number from their starting nine that equated to 0.35 and everybody else was like well below it or the Dodgers team in 2017 that lost the Astros. This was the craziest one that blew me. Uh, like it was 0.3501 for the Astros and the Dodgers were 0.3499. And that was the differential. And so, you know, there is a way to assess stolen bases. I think they're a very valuable part of the game. And it's something that I think we're missing. So, yes, in fantasy baseball purposes, my gosh, a Ricky Henderson, it would be refreshing to find something like that. You know, Shohei Otani's the reincarnation of Babe Ruth. Why can't we have another reincarnation of Ricky Henderson? Give me a D Gordon, but also – or now I guess it's D Strange Gordon. Give me a D Strange Gordon with a way cooler and less strange name uh, with maybe some more offensive firepower like a Freddie Freeman, and all of a sudden, I, you know, that's, that's a guy I want. 
Yeah, because Ricky Henderson, if you might only have a 370 slugging, but if every single turns into a double because you stole second, it's like you have a higher slugging. So that's kind of interesting. Exactly. Uh, we're going to go over our MLB draft, like what we would do in fantasy baseball and dynasty leagues. And we're going to look position by position and tell you who our favorite fantasy baseball pick for each position is. But first, let's do our MLB steps. We'll go over some headlines, just things happening in the game. Obviously, the MLB All-Star Game, Home Run Derby just occurred. What were your thoughts from everything that went on this past week of course? With the Home Run Derby, um, number one, that Trey Mancini story. I mean, how cool was that? You know, you have a guy that's coming back from cancer. I don't think people realize it's not just the story of the fact that, oh, he overcame adversity. You know, he's still feeling the effects of that, right? Like, like that's not something that just goes away. And so to have the stability, the endurance, the, the grit – to go as far as he did, to have somehow dig deep inside and go, you know, finish second in that home run derby against what, what seems like an impossible to beat uh, boss that is Pete Alonso. Pete Alonso reminds me of the boss in Sonic where you could just never beat that boss. You know, you're on like stage 10 and Sonic like is running all over the place and still this boss is in like this, this fire. Uh, I don't even know what you would call it really. It's almost like in Star Wars, a pod racer, but uh, it's flying all around. You're trying to beat the boss. You just can't do that. That's Pete Alonzo. Uh, but if anybody was close to Sonic, that was Trey Mancini and that comeback was just remarkable. As for the All-Star game, you know, to be honest, and I think I mentioned it on the last show too, I'm not the biggest fan of the All-Star game. Now, obviously, it doesn't have as much value to me. But to be able to see Shohei Otani go out there, start and you know start on the hill and take two at-bats, I know that he didn't really succeed at the plate. doesn't matter. The fact that he's able to do that a day after the home run derby, it, we are watching just a generational talent. And uh, I hope people that love baseball are enjoying this. And I hope people that don't pay attention to baseball start paying attention because this is history that we're witnessing uh, and that was really cool to watch that. What about you? Home Run Derby, awesome. Hated the broadcast at first on ESPN. Switched over to ESPN2. It was a lot better. A lot of people here in the local area were pretty upset because apparently on the ESPN broadcast, I had switched ESPN2 by here by then. They did not talk about Salvador Perez in his what he did basically at all. He hit 28 home runs, which was the second most in the first round. Right, it happened right. playing Pete Alonso. They did an interview with Pete Alonso the entire time, and they were, like, showing him on camera and stuff, not showing Salvador Perez. So people were mad about that. But the ESPN2 broadcast did better. It was a bit of whiplash with the format. I think I kind of started to notice after that matchup, once they got to the Soto-Otani matchup, which that was the best matchup. That was phenomenal. Every so often you could see in the corner of the camera, they were trying not to show him, but every so often you'd get shown. The umpire would throw his like hand up. So I think they started slowing it down a bit to help the broadcast a little. But out, after that, it was, it was really fun. Same for me for the All-Star game. The only takeaway I had from the All-Star game, I went back and looked at this. And this is something we've talked about. And I think it very much applies from a fantasy baseball standpoint. You can be an elite hitter. You can be a really good hitter. As soon as you come up from AAA, you 20, 21, 22 years old, there were six hitters who were 24 or under who played in the All-Star game. Now, when you look at pitchers, there was just one pitcher who was 24 or under. It was Trevor Rogers, who's 23 years old. Obviously, less pitchers were used than hitters, but still percentage-wise, it's lower. The other big thing is the fact that Again, this is what I'm, I'm going to. With pitchers, it takes longer for a lot of these guys to figure it out. When you look at the – there were 41 hitters that appeared in the All-Star game between both leagues. Of the 41 hitters that appeared, 
37% were 30 or older. Meanwhile, for the pitchers, of the 19 pitchers that appeared, 58%, so a much higher jump, were 30 or older. I think that just shows you that there are rare occasions where a guy like maybe an Alec Manoa is going to come up and pitch well right away as a youngster. We saw that with Chris Paddock, although that hasn't really carried over into his other years as well. But it's a lot more often that we see guys start to really find their footing as pitchers as opposed to hitters when they're somewhere between that 26 to 28 year range. I think that's such a great point. And yeah, we've talked about that in the past and it's, Amazing to me because, you know, for, uh, for fantasy baseball purposes in the league that we're in right now, one of the guys that I'm having a hard time evaluating is Shane Baz because, you know, the way that he's been pitching has been lights out in the minor leagues. But the moment you get to the MLB level, it's a complete different speed. These guys have been seeing this every day uh, for their entire careers. And so, you know, when they get film on you, I think that that obviously changes the game. Um, and so having film on a pitcher – that can kind of lead to younger guys needing to make adjustments and maybe they struggle to do that. Oftentimes you see these older pitchers succeed better because they spent off season after off season working on new pitches, trying to adjust to those that have already adjusted to them. And I think that's a big factor. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's really a good takeaway that Derek had right there because it is obvious, but that this younger generation is succeeding at the plate, but maybe not so much on the Hill uh, you have the Scoobles of the world. You have the Spencer Howards of the world uh, that really just haven't panned out initially. Casey Mize, I thought, was going to be pretty dang good, and then he's kind of dropped off even a little bit. It, it takes time, folks, and you have to sit back. You have to be patient. Um, and, you know, it, it didn't take Julio Arias overnight to become the guy that he is today. You know, he's been a top prospect for what feels like year after year, right? And so he's finally actually getting recognition because he's finally – living up to the potential uh, that he kind of was supposed to live up to. And so uh, you can make an argument that Kevin Gosman uh, was brought up as a guy that was supposed to be a top tier pitcher for a while there. And he never really panned out according. And all of a sudden <laughs> now he's one of the best in the league. So it's just, it's crazy to watch the difference between the progression of pitchers and the progression of hitters. The thing that's a little concerning to me about that is that we're also seeing pitchers getting injured at much higher rates. And so it makes you wonder the value of a starting pitcher. I mean, it's going to shoot through the roof because if these guys are going to be better over time, but they can't get to that period over time because of injury, you're going to have a very limited number of pitchers that can actually go deep in ball games that can succeed and dominate major league hitting. It's going to be, I think, even more of a rarity year in, year out of seeing top tier starters. And so I think, from a fantasy perspective, I used to believe hitters were more valuable by a mile than pitchers. You could convince me it's the other way around for me now, where hitters don't matter nearly as much to me because I think there's more talent out there. Um, you saw Adolis Garcia come up, uh, came out of the blue, and now all of a sudden he's an all-star uh, with the AL. You're seeing guys like resurgent years like Brandon Crawford, right? And so on the flip side, just finding great starting pitching, it's not easy at this time. And I think it's only going to get harder. Tyler Glass now being out, that was really unfortunate. It's it, The injuries are concerning to me. I, I agree. I, I think I'm kind of to a point where I'm going to start like trading away pitching prospects, especially if they're about to come up. And I'm going to start just 
in the offseason taking swings on guys who are between 26 to 28, maybe haven't totally panned out, and maybe you just take risks on them. So we'll see what the effect on that is moving forward. The Yankees and Red Sox were supposed to get the second half kicked off tonight. We're recording this on Thursday, but that game has been postponed or canceled because of a COVID issue with the New York Yankees. I think this is a good reminder that we're still not fully clear of this. We're seeing this a lot in like the Olympics where it's caused no crowd to be there. And I think I saw numbers are at a six month high or something in Tokyo right now. This is obviously very bad news. Yeah, not great. Uh, Obviously people are kind of jumping out at the Delta variant too that came out. You know, on this show, we're not political. We don't do any talk around the world in terms of what our opinions are revolving around politics or anything like that. But it is pretty obvious that the COVID issue is still going to be a problem throughout the rest of the season. Uh, You saw Aaron Judge and Gio Urshela, to name just a few that were placed on the COVID IL. And uh, more importantly, you just wonder, uh, because this took place at the All-Star game, that these cases were caught, um, how is that going to impact the other 29 teams uh, with representatives from their top tier players that were also there? Do you think that they possibly were exposed? Now, we've also seen that 99% of these cases have been revolving around people that weren't vaccinated. But, uh, you know, you don't know who was vaccinated and who wasn't at the All-Star game. This could end up becoming a disaster right before our eyes. Uh, So hopefully it won't be, but really not great news considering there was only supposed to be one game on Thursday. And that game happened to be the lead of attention and uh, for the wrong ways, every wrong way possible uh, due to COVID. Yeah, hopefully this is just kind of a blip on the radar, but I guess it's just kind of wait and see right now. That does bring up the fact, though, that the second half is starting, which it will be, I guess, now tomorrow. Going back and looking at our preseason bets, which we'll give our drinks at the end of the season based on that, We have some good bets. We have some bad bets. So I'm going to allow both of us to not necessarily alter. Our bet is still in place, but either double down if you're really confident about a bet or you can hedge a bet. So for instance, I have the twins and the Braves winning the American league and the national league. So I am going to change one of those bets, not change again, the previous bet's still in place, but I'm going to add a second bet there. So I am between either changing my AL winner and my NL or my NL winner. And I can't decide which one. Do you have a bet you want to change from what we did at the beginning? I, from what I recall that I did, I was pretty high on the Red Sox initially. So I'm, I'm happy that that kind of stayed the way the course. Um, you have the Braves winning the NL as well. Yeah, I would like to change that. <laughs> that will not be happening uh, with Ronald Acuna Jr., uh, obviously, unfortunately, out for the remainder of the season. For those of you that missed it, Obviously, he has a full tear of his ACL after jumping at a Jazz Chisholm drive to right field in Miami, had to be carted off the field. It was really just huge break uh, for the – not break, I should say, huge loss for Major League Baseball um, because Ronald Acuna Jr., one of the most exciting in the league. Uh, but, yes, I would like to change that. Um, just based off what I've been seeing, I mean, you have to imagine that it's going to be a team from the NL West – Uh, And based off the odds that we're seeing right now, uh, the Dodgers still lead at plus 360 on Bavada. Um, You have the Padres at 700 and the Giants at plus plus 1,000. And so, I mean, it's hard for me to see this Dodgers team repeat. The way that just every little blow is going against them right now, 
you almost feel like it's the Padres year. Uh, there's something about it that just gives you that feel. And it could be the Giants here too. Uh, I mean, if the Giants make a splash at the deadline, watch out folks, because they've been the best team in baseball. Um, so because of that, you know, I, I feel a lot better about picking one of those three. I'm going to go with the one that I feel like is going to be active at the deadline and probably the most energy. And that's going to be the Padres at plus 700. I am going to go with the Milwaukee Brewers because I think they will be active at the deadline as well, looking for hitters. They have everything you want for pitchers. You can get them at five to one to win the national league. I'm going to take that since I have the Braves and I guess I'll just rock with the twins and just accept that I lost that one because the here's, twins have percentage. Here's a good proposal for you. If you're picking the Brewers, one thing that I was listening to on MLB network radio, they were talking about Anthony Rizzo potential destinations. The odds that Anthony Rizzo is dealt with in the division to a rival, it doesn't seem likely, right? But if you think about the Cubs' best fit in terms of potential prospect return uh, and also the best fit in terms of acquiring Rizzo, it might just be the Milwaukee Brewers. So do the Cubs bite the bullet and say, it doesn't matter if they're a division rival or not, they make the most sense? Or do they say they're our rival, we will not negotiate with them? What, what do you think? I think that the whole we can't trade with this other team because they're in our division thing is kind of silly. Like, if they give you the best offer, just take it. Who cares? I, I can understand it a little bit when it's a heated rivalry. And I guess the Brewers and Cubs are rivals, but I don't view them as – maybe I'd I, – unaware here but i don't view them as being the same level of like a red sox yankees or a giants dodgers or something right they're not they're not they're close they're close though they're they're rivals and the brewers i think if you ask most brewers fans they would probably say their biggest rival is the cubs so it's kind of like one of those you know brother and little brother situations where the cubs obviously are the big brother and the brewers have kind of always been the little brother so yeah it, it's cubs fans love to say that not Miller Park anymore. I don't even remember. It's like American Families Park or something like that. Uh, that that is literally Wrigley North, and I know that just grinds the gears of every Brewers fan. So it, it is it is a rivalry. It's just you know the Cubs would say their biggest rival is the Cardinals. The Brewers would probably say their biggest rival is the Cubs. So all right, what about this trade? Because he's struggling, but he's still young and probably has potential, and also it would open up a even bigger hole for playing time at first base. Keston Hira for Anthony Rizzo, who says no. I think that that's actually a pretty interesting deal. Um, that obviously would have to mean that the Brewers are completely cutting ties, which I think that it would have to cost probably the Cubs a little more than that. Because if I'm correct, I think Rizzo is technically a free agent at the end of this year. Um, and so if that's the case, I would say that the Brewers are more likely to say no. However, Keston's on the older side of things, and he's not quite producing the way that I think Brewers fans want him to. Change of, change of scenery could be nice. Um, and also to have maybe less stress on him and to kind of let him settle in. Uh, obviously, he's had some issues at home, too. Uh, his mother is suffering from cancer. It's really unfortunate. And, you know, our thoughts go to him off the field big time on that. But – uh, it would be an interesting deal because I think that that actually would be a name that is involved at the deadline for a guy like Rizzo. So it's, it's really not that bad of a thought. It, it, it's very plausible. Um, my guess is the Cubs would have to throw in another piece like a reliever like Chafin. Uh, and all of a sudden, maybe that is something that the Brewers consider doing.
Okay, let's get on to our favorite 2021 MLB draft selections for each position if you're in a dynasty fantasy baseball league. We'll go catcher, first base, second base, third, shortstop, an outfielder, a college pitcher, a college pitcher not from Vanderbilt, and a high school pitcher. First up, let's do the catcher because that's probably the easiest. It's got to be Henry Davis, right? Yeah, there's no doubt about this. There's a reason why he's picked first for a reason. Uh, obviously, he's going to get the opportunity probably before anybody else in this draft that uh, you know was drafted by one of these you know younger picks, if you will. And I, I think that we're going to see him in the league not too long from now, honestly. Uh, I'm excited to see what direction he goes, but he's a pretty obvious pick. Uh, you're going to see him taken very high in most fantasy leagues. Coming out of Louisville as well, he projects incredibly well. Uh, he's 21 years old. Expect him to come up. I believe I've been seeing late 22, early 23. I mean, there's a chance you see him next year. I don't think that's going to happen, but there's actually a chance that does. 370 average, 663 slugging with Louisville his final year. He's phenomenal, so he's definitely the top catcher. First base is a little interesting. There's no big, like, first baseman in this draft. A lot of guys you're looking at are going to be, like, outside the top 50, depending where you're looking. I'll start this one off. I'm going to go a little bit off the beaten path here, and I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to go a guy who's not listed as a first baseman. It's Nathan Hickey. He's actually a catcher, and I have no clue if there are plans to move him to first, but his scouting report is a guy who doesn't have, like, a good defensive acumen, but he does have a good bat. That sounds like a guy that's going to eventually move to first. He's also just a draft-eligible sophomore. Sophomore, So I, I like betting on a guy like that who – who, who knows, maybe next year when he would have been a junior if he would have stayed. Who knows, I guess, I guess he still could stay. He doesn't have to sign necessarily. Um, but that he could all of a sudden turn into a guy that we look at as like a first-round pick if he had a Henry Davis type of season, so to speak. So I like Hickey uh, for maybe the top first baseman. He's a guy who, this is from Prospects Live, their scouting report, bat first, backstop, may struggle to stay behind the plate long-term. The hit tool is good. Some believe the raw power is every bit a 60 tool. That's good enough for me. Yeah, the first base position in this particular draft was actually incredibly weak, but I think a name that goes under the radar it is the first one that you will see at first base ranked in terms of prospects, uh, and that is the first baseman, Kyle Manzardo out of Washington State. He's put up pretty unbelievable numbers in his career at WSU, and uh, I don't think people realize, it, you know, the Pac-12 is one that I think is not slept on per se in college baseball, but th there's talent still around there. And this kid is one of the more special talents. Uh, he was picked up by the Tampa Bay Rays uh, in the second round, but last season hits 365, has an on-base percentage of 437, slugs 640, uh, OPS over 1,000. I mean, had 11 home runs in the process and only struck out 29 times, 29 times in 197 at-bats, which is pretty remarkable. So to me, at least to be able to see those numbers, and uh, I, I think it's more of a, since I haven't seen him in person, I sometimes do believe numbers don't always speak for themselves. I'd like to at least take the chance, since this is fantasy we're talking about, that maybe the numbers will speak for themselves. And with Tampa Bay, it's really difficult, obviously, to see what direction that organization goes year to year, but you, you never know. I mean, with that system, there's not really anybody blocking him per se uh, that would hold him back from getting called up in the near future. I like that one. Second base is kind of a similar situation where if you wanted, you could say maybe a guy like Khalil Watson or Matt McClain will play second base. Even Sal Freelich, who's an outfielder, has shown some second base action. If we're going with a pure second baseman, I'm going with Peyton Stovall. 
He has a 60 hit tool, 50 power tool on MLB.com. He's a high school kid. It just sounds like he has a sweet swing. Um, kind of your perfect second baseman that can drive it to all, all fields. There's some comparisons if you go to Prospects Live to guys like Jason Kipnis, Daniel Murphy, Todd Walker. I really like this Peyton Stovall kid. I think he's going to be a good solid pro for a while. I would go with him at second base. Stovall's a pretty good pick. I'm going to go back to one of the names you actually mentioned there with Matt McLean out of UCLA. Uh, he kind of projects, to me at least, to be more of a guy that would play second base. Um, I, I like the system he got picked in, obviously, as well. Uh, at the end of the day, I think McLean kind of fits what the Reds have to offer as a, a spot that maybe he will end up shifting to second. Uh, it, it is tough because the second base class was also not that strong. This is probably one of my weaker answers, uh, but I liked what McLean had to offer at UCLA. had nine home runs, nine steals. He's one of those more, I think, low, not necessarily high ceilings. It's more of a low ceiling, high floor type of guy. Uh, and I think that he could be a pretty safe pick at second. At third base, I'm going Brady House. He has phenomenal hit tools in terms of power. He smashes the baseball. His exit velocity numbers are really good. This is also with the MLB.com at the very end. Scouts compare him to a more athletic version of Joey Gallo. That's good enough for me. Brady House, top third baseman. Yeah, I read the exact same things. He's technically listed as a shortstop. So it kind of comes back to the whole what's that situation going to look like in the near future. Uh, obviously, right now, Trey Turner is manning that job at shortstop. So uh, you never know. And obviously, the Nationals have a couple of young guys that could project to end up stealing one of those infield spots. Uh, it's really hard to tell early on. But House, to me, is actually one of the best projects uh, and he's not really much of a project, if you will. Like, like you had mentioned, he's got Joey Gallo size power. Um, I really like what he has to offer. He's got the build more so for a third baseman, I think, than a shortstop too. Uh, so I, I would agree with that. I think that's a pretty good pick for third base. Shortstop, we have pick of the litter between guys like Marcelo Meyer, Jordan Lawler. You could even go back to Brady House. Like you said, he is a shortstop. Some people are just projecting the move to third. I will go with Meyer. I've seen some Corey Seager comps, which is awesome. Meyer might not have as much power as a guy like Jordan Lawler, but it seems like he has maybe a little bit higher floor there. And the frame is, is big enough that makes you think the power will eventually come there. I also just love the fact that he got drafted by the Red Sox. Sometimes with worse organizations, you might have to worry a little bit. Are they going to mess this up? But you don't really have to worry about with the Red Sox. It's honestly a very fair argument. I am going to go the other side though, and I'm going to take Lawler. Uh, one part is the Texan or former Texan in me. I've heard a lot about this kid uh, prior to moving back to California. I heard a lot about uh, the five tools that he had. His name was being thrown out there with Bobby Wood Jr. in almost every other sentence uh, while I was out there. And uh, to see some of just the raw footage of him, uh, the kid projects to be an everyday major leaguer. And to be drafted by the Diamondbacks, too, I think that it's a pretty safe spot uh, in terms of at least he'll have an opportunity coming up soon. Uh, but in terms of maybe the now, it is a little concerning of just obviously where's the growth? How, have they ever developed a shortstop that's projected to be a, a bigger name? Not really. So Cattell Marte uh, will not be taking up his spot either. That's a second baseman outfielder if they decide not to trade him at some point in the near future. Uh, but yes, I think Lawler is probably my guy. And I thought he had the chance to be the number one overall pick too. Uh, there, you could have argued that there were three to four guys that could have been that number one overall pick. Yeah, I really think if we tiered this off, like if you have a top five pick, top four pick in your fantasy draft for these rookies, I think you'll be fine anywhere you are with if you get 
Meyer, if you get Lawler, if you get a guy like Leiter, um, if you get Henry Davis, I think you're fine with any of those four, to be completely honest. What about outfield? I think it's mostly between Sal Freelich or Colton Kowser. I'll take Freelich. I, you know, I love my contact guys. He reminds me of like a little bit more of an athletic, better defensive version of Andrew Benintendi, which Benintendi, that, that might sound like a bad thing. If I would have said so a couple of years ago, you would have said, wow, that's high praise. He's actually had an okay year with the Royals. So I, I think that's an okay comp. Kind of wild to think back to when Andrew Benatendi was one of those higher tier prospects that was really demanded in a lot of fantasy leagues as well. Uh, he was tossed around in our league. It was pretty insane to watch what he's gone team to team to team. I was part of that trend. I'm going to go the other way around. I'm going to go with Kowser. Uh, you know, a lot of people thought it was a reach uh, that he was picked as early as he was in this draft. And I'm going to tell you, maybe it was a bit of a reach in terms of uh, there are other great talented players that could have been picked ahead of him, but I don't think it's that much of a stretch. I might've liked Lawler more than him, uh, but cows are going to the Orioles offense. I think that that team is uh, they're They're looking to build a ridiculous outfield. Think about this. Heston Kerstad's going to be in that outfield too in the near future with Kowser. Uh Kowser's stats as an age 21 uh, hitter for Sam Houston State. I mean, he had 16 home runs at a 374 average, had an on-base percentage. This is what blew my mind when I saw this, 490. Uh, and the slugging percentage of 680 as well. Uh, he can hit with the best of them in the league. I think that he's going to be one of those guys that's probably more major league ready than others in this draft coming out of college. And so I'm curious to see how long his weight is going to be in Baltimore uh, before he gets the chance to come up. It's another one that I could see maybe late in September of next year. He has the chance to go up there along with Heston Kirsted. College pitcher. Is it Jack Leiter? Do you want to go with Kumar Rocker or somebody else? I love Rocker, but I mean, Leiter's the better guy. He's the safer pick. He's got the best stuff. Uh, he throws harder. Um, you know, a lot of the concerns about Rocker, it's mostly been what I've heard from other voices like yourself, DJ. It hasn't been a lot of my own personal analysis, but, you know, coming up in the Vanderbilt system, I loved Rocker and I loved what he had to offer. I still believe in him and I think he got drafted by the right team to keep him uh, you know, in a good direction, I would have been a lot more concerned uh, if it was an organization that doesn't really, you know, handle pitching well. If it was a team like the Rockies, my gosh, that would have been a disaster. Uh, I like Rocker a lot, but yeah, I, I think Leiter's the obvious pick there. It's, it's going to be interesting, though, because that's an organization right there with the Texas Rangers where they've really struggled to develop pitching. So could that possibly be the downfall of Leiter? I don't know. Well, then what about, why don't we pick a college pitcher not from Vanderbilt? Uh, I think for me, there's three guys that stick out. I know some people like Ty Madden. I don't know why. I'm not like super in on Ty Madden. I do love Bednar, and of course the Giants got him. I wouldn't pick him. But the other two, Gunnar Hoagland's really interesting to me. He had Tommy John. I wonder if he didn't have Tommy John in the spring, if he would have been talked about as being in the same discussion as a guy like Kumar Rocker. So he's interesting. But the guy that I really like is Sam Bachman. And there is a lot of risk that he's going to turn into a reliever. But I honestly don't mind that. If he turns into an elite closer, that's still super valuable there. He's a guy who has hit 102. He ranked second in uh, D1 in whip. He not only has the really fast fastball, which it's a 70-grade fastball, by the way, out of 80. He has a 65-grade slider, but I think he can be a starter. He has a 55-grade changeup. If the changeup gets a little better, now you have three pitches. Now you are a starter. Even then, we've seen pitchers nowadays where, like a Tyler Glass now, if you have two elite pitches, that might be enough to be a good starter. So I really like Sam Bachman. 
I'm going to make a rather biased pick here. Uh, <laughs> Derek already knows where this one's going, but I got to go with Michael McGreevy. He comes out of UCSB. He had a 2.92 ERA, 9-2 and record with the Gauchos. Um, he's got filthy stuff. If you ever got to see him play in the Big West, uh, I mean, he was challenging against some of the better hitters in college baseball day in, day out. That's a very underrated league. Uh, and to have the Cardinals swipe him, I think is what's really – the big thing for me there because the Cardinal way is a real thing when it comes to starting pitching. And if they're going to make a reach for a guy that comes out of a place like UCSB, where he's only one of two UCSB starters to ever be picked in the first round. In fact, not just starters, players in general, uh, only one player out of UCSB has been picked in the first round outside of McGreevy. Uh, I like the odds of McGreevy being able to, down the stretch be one of the starters that the Cardinals rely on because look at what they have in their system they have Libertor they have uh you know some decent guys that are coming up but overall there's not a ton of depth there so I think McGreevy has a pretty good chance from a fantasy perspective to have an impact pretty quickly I also do love the Bednar pick for the Giants uh just what you saw in the College World Series I know that it's not the pros I know it's not uh it doesn't always translate but there's something to be said about a guy that can come up clutch for you and uh, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, numbers don't always speak for me. And Bednar's numbers were pretty dang good. But to be able to show what he did in the College World Series down the stretch, I think the Giants are really great at developing pitching. And they, you know, Farhan makes decisions uh, as much as anybody else analytically, understanding who he's bringing in, understanding the background. You can't really go wrong with a guy that's going to help you lead uh, your team to the College World Series run the way that he did. And it's interesting because the Giants have had a bit of a lull between taking pitching after they, they had success with guys like Tim Lincecum, and then all of a sudden they hit a bit of a lull. They took guys like Chris Stratton and Tyler Beattie in the first round. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's all kind of a lottery and a crapshoot. But I, I like the pick for the Giants. I'm, I'm excited for it. And McGreevy, he went to the same college that Shane Bieber did. I've heard that. As soon as I saw him picked, I don't know why. I just got like immediate vibes of, oh, Michael Walker 2.0. He's going to be up in like a year with the Cardinals and pitching well as a rookie, and he's going to lead them to the NLCS or something. Uh, what about high school pitcher? It's a good pick. Uh, for high school pitchers, I'm going to have to go down to where the Dodgers are just because I've probably done the most research on Maddox Bruns, but uh, what I've heard, I mean, they, they've literally projected him to be the next Clayton Kershaw. They haven't drafted a lefty starter since Kershaw in 06. So uh, to see some of the stuff that he has out of right prep, uh, this kid is filthy. And he throws incredibly hard. He's six foot two, I believe 205 pounds. I mean, uh, the kid is going to be special. And being in the Dodgers system, I mean, let them run with it because they've been doing it for year after year. They have one of the best systems in terms of developing starting pitching. You would imagine that this is just going to be another classic Dodgers lefty starter that they bring up that does big things. And uh, yeah, Maddox Bruns having his first name being Maddox. Uh, there's something to be said about that. Uh, obviously he spells it the way that Greg Maddox does too. So uh, you never know. Maybe he projects to be the lefty Greg. I mean, quite a career if he was, I, I don't mind that at all because that is a big piece of this. It is, who drafts you? Do you have the right development in place? And I think that matters. So I really like that pick. I'll just, I'll be boring. I'll go with Jackson Job. He was the top high school pitcher taken. Seems like he has the highest ceiling of any pitcher in the draft. One thing that just, I had a question about, as I was watching the draft, they said like his curveball had like a 3,200 RPM or something. And it got me thinking, there's no way of knowing this. Certainly MLB scouts and teams can be there and maybe they can scout and find out. But for all we know, 
there are certain high schoolers or college pitchers without the same regulations in place of the MLB that are using sticky stuff that aren't going to be allowed to do so once they get to the majors. And all of a sudden you're going to have a guy who was taken in the second round who wasn't using sticky stuff is used to it and is going to be way better than a guy who was picked in the first round who's been relying on the sticky stuff. It's actually such an interesting point that you bring up right there because you have to think about all those outside circumstances that have now been addressed. Also think about COVID, the fact that in 2020, a lot of these kids' uh, careers kind of hit a massive uh, stop, you know? And so what does that do for them in terms of their 2021 regular seasons? Did that impact their draft stock at all? You may see more guys that slipped late in the draft than ever before actually succeed just because you you saw what Christian Yelich did I mean the major league level was a pretty good sample size of you know having that COVID year that was not easy to respond to so this might be the most interesting draft class just because we know the least about a lot of these guys uh we can look all at the numbers and as you mentioned the sticky stuff too uh, this is probably going to be a really interesting group to dissect in about six to seven years from now just because I bet we're going to have a lot of incorrect answers and a lot of guys that were overlooked. Yeah, and I don't mean to say like Jackson Job is cheating and using sticky stuff, by the way. I'm just saying it. I saw the RPM number. and I was like, what is stopping if somebody had crazy RPM because of that? Okay, let's get to our final segment, the shotgun six-pack. This is our short, quick answer speed round. Number one, the Home Run Derby broadcast was blank. Confusing probably would be the best thing for me. I mean, honestly, you had a, I have terrible vision. And so I have a small TV at work that I was watching it on as I was doing my work. And, you know, they had the split screen and every five seconds, the camera angles going a different direction. Uh, you didn't really know which home run they were calling. And I, I'm not a huge fan of the speed round either. I know that obviously the Shohei Otani Juan Soto situation was exciting, but it was confusing just to watch that broadcast. I, I agree with you. The ESPN2 is better. I like the speed stuff. I just wish they – I honestly am fine with the rule going back to you have to wait before it lands, before you swing the next one. That's what it should be to me because then it's a happy medium between you not having to take a bunch of pitches and waiting for the next swing and that. So the Home Run Derby broadcast was crazy because it was tough to keep up with everything, but it was also very fun in certain senses, so crazy. Yes or no for number two, Pete Alonso should enter the home run derby every year for the rest of his career. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, that was so much fun to watch. He, he made it look easy. I mean, Trey Mancini was swinging his heart out and, and Alonso's dancing there. I think the funniest moment, maybe it's not the most funny, but at least to me, just ironic. Pete Alonso hits a shot. It doesn't go out of the ballpark. It hits a kid. They're walking the kid off the field and Alonso's just dancing in the batter's box. Like, it's almost like he didn't know what he just did. Like he torched a baseball and hurt a kid. Uh, but he's exciting for the home run derby. That was maybe the weirdest part. Uh, but just the tanks that he was hitting at Coors, man. I mean, uh, Dodger Stadium better watch out because their screens might actually be in danger of Alonzo destroying one of them. I, I also want to see the Vlad Guerrero Jr. Alonzo rematch because I think that would be a lot of fun at Dodger Stadium next year. I will say yes. I would like to see him in it for the rest of his career, at least till he loses. He needs to lose the title first. I think it'd be very funny if we're in like the year 2032 and it's like, 13-time defending champ, Pete Alonzo in the Home Run Derby. Joey Chestnut. Joey Chestnut of the Home Run Derby. I love that comp. Okay, number three, would you like to see the Bunt Derby added <laughs> to the lineup? Did you see – have you ever seen these videos? It's almost like a combination of like curling or bocce ball. Was that Japan that they were doing it in? It was. 
It was really amazing because they have, yeah, it, it looked like curling. Like they had a setup where you got so many points for bunting it to a certain spot. I would love that. I think that's great TV. And then all of a sudden, uh, our boy D Strange Gordon can go in with the best of them there. You might have Tim LaCastro being a, a legit star in that too. I could see that being a thing. Uh, or any of the leadoff hitters in the world. I mean, I would love to see Fernando Tatis Jr. go up against like a Bartolo Colon against a D Strange Gordon. You could be wild with this bunt thing because you could have a pitcher go out there too. Uh, you know, obviously I think Clayton Kershaw is one that drops a lot of bunts. I think Gosman does that pretty well. Um, just to see some of the best pitchers do it, that would be kind of cool. Yeah, it would. Okay, number four, but yes, I, I do want that added. Uh, number four, your favorite prospect for dynasty fantasy value who played in the Futures game is blank. Bobby Wood Jr. Uh, I really like that kid a lot. Uh, he had a couple hard hit balls, uh, didn't go out of the ballpark, but the swing is there. He projects incredibly well, is super young. I got to watch him in person when he played in high school. I actually had a chance to interview him. Very poised player. Uh, I think that he's got all five tools. He's going to have an opportunity quickly with the Royals. I love what he has to offer. Rushman's also another pick that would have been pretty easy for me. If you're in a two-catcher league or if you're in a deep league, so like 15 teams or basically you need to stretch thinner on catchers, my favorite fantasy guy would be Rushman. I love Julio Rodriguez. He's probably my favorite player there. Just a happy-go-lucky guy. I think he's going to be really good. But otherwise, I think my favorite prospect there would probably be uh, mm, this is tough. I'm, I'm between a couple guys. I'll go with uh, Bobby Witt as well. I, I think he's just so exciting. I, I wanted to be a little different, so I was about to pick somebody else, but he's mine as well. Great. He's going to be kind of like a Troy Tulowitzki type of guy, to be completely honest. I could see that. Uh, that's a great comp right there. I like that a lot. Number five, the Angels taking all pitchers for their <laughs> entire 20-round draft with 19 of them being college pitchers is blank reactionary is what I would say <laughs> is it not I mean the fact that they've just had terrible pitching for so many years now I mean the last good pitcher the Angels in my opinion have produced uh that's been consistent was Jared Weaver honestly I I, I can't really think of anybody else off the top of my head that they produced that really panned out in their system um and that was years ago. And then obviously you saw the drop off with Weaver and so did the angels. It's funny uh, to see that they took that many pitchers. And um, you know, I think that they're trying to prove a point that, you know what, we, we know that we have not done a very good job of producing. So we're going to take 20 of these guys and let's hope one to two of them pan out. And Hey, I mean, good for them. You do need one to two to pan out and all of a sudden you're fine. Right. So it's going to be interesting to kind of monitor that. Uh, I think they took quite a few college pitchers as well in that group. So uh, they're talking about the near future kind of guys that they want to be, you know, at the top. But as we talked about early in this podcast, the other thing is how do those guys react uh, in their first couple of years in the MLB? That's going to be fun to watch. I agree with your reactionary comment just because of the fact that for all we know, like right now they are, yes, they are very bad at pitching, but for all we know, they'll go out and make a trade or sign somebody and by the time all these guys come up, which could be anywhere between two to six years, depending on the pitcher, it might be irrelevant. I've always heard the phrase that you develop hitting, you trade for pitching. This completely goes away from that. I think they would have been smarter to be a little more even there because you don't know what the future holds. What happens if Mike Trout gets traded? What happens if 
this player gets hurt you weren't expecting to, and all of a sudden your hitting's not as good as you thought. You just don't know. So it seems a little silly to me to completely load up on one thing in the MLB draft, even though the Angels do need pitchers. You wanted to go all pitchers in the first 10 rounds, go for it, but then be a little balanced after that. Okay, last one, number six, sticking with the Angels. Adam Eaton signing with the team makes him rosterable if you were in a deep fantasy league. It depends on how deep it is, but I actually was saying when I heard that that move that – that's a pretty underrated signing. Uh, I know that he didn't pan out with the White Sox, but Eaton's always been serviceable as a major league player. I would say it's probably better not having him rostered on your fantasy team just because he's on the older end. Uh, but you know what? It, with the way the Angels are going right now, they could very well use another guy that knows how to get on base and change of scenery could help him a little bit. Um, there's not unbelievable pitching in that division that they play in either. So, and obviously the pitching in the central, I think is a lot better in my opinion. Um, so it's going to be interesting to watch the difference as Eaton makes that adjustment. It's not like we don't know what Adam Eaton does. We've seen him for years. We saw him in the world series in 2019. We know that he's capable of being a, a heavy producer at the top of a lineup. Um, I'm curious to see where Madden decides to bat him. You would assume he's going to be hitting in the eight or the nine hole. Uh, but Hey, if he produces early on, Imagine him hitting in front of some of those guys in that lineup. I mean, it could be a huge blessing in disguise. So I'm going to say, sure, in a, a deeper league, sure, you can roster him. I'm not going to say no. I w for me, I, in our league, it's not deep enough to where you would want him. But in a 16-team league with six outfielders, sure. Yeah, I, I would definitely go in 15 or 16 – 12 would probably be borderline. It, it depends how many people are on your roster. I probably would, though. Like, when you look at the other healthy outfielders for the Angels right now, Phil Gosselin, Keen Wong can play the outfield off the bench. They have Juan Lagares in center, Taylor Ward in left. Adam Eaton is going to get playing time, basically is what I'm saying. So if you're in a deep enough league where just getting guys that playing time matters for the totals, then yes, absolutely. But if you're in maybe a 12-team league with – less roster options or a 10 team league, then probably ignore this altogether. Okay. <laughs> that is today's show of booze and baseball episode number 27. It is closing time here. Subscribe to us. Give us a five-star review. Tell your friends about it. We're on iTunes, Google podcasts, Podbean, Amazon audible. You can also follow us social media at booze and baseball. Our email is booze and baseball at gmail.com. You can suggest anything for the show. If you have questions about fantasy baseball trades, if you want some alcohol for us to review, boozeandbaseballgmail.com. Thanks to Mixkit for the stock music. Also, thank you to Man Cave Merch for the coasters. New coasters in, at least for me. I don't know if Dusty's got his. Mine's coming in this week. Mine's coming in this week. Another thing that came in for Man Cave Merch, Man Cave Merch, Thomas Meek had his kid, Miles Meek. The new legend, the new third baseman, as I like to say, he has come up as well. Maybe uh, while Man Cave merch makes us merch, he also is going to make merch of his future MLB star. So congratulations to the Meeks on uh, Miles Meek arriving. But those coasters are awesome, by the way. And uh, with the group that we have joined, Just Baseball, he made some coasters for them as well. Uh, DJ, what do you think? You've got it in your hand right now. I'm going to see it when I get back from, uh, from Texas. What, what does it look like? It's absolutely awesome. It's a coaster, and you can get football cards, baseball cards, whatever you want in there. These have the – and we have some of those. But these have the Booze and Baseball logo. It looks really cool. It's shiny. It's glimmery. I love it. And, obviously, you need coasters around the house. But it's cooler to have decorative coasters. 
just like it's cooler to have like decorative socks or something cool on your t-shirt. So check out Man Cave merch. Drink responsibly and have a good one. For Dusty Baker, I'm Derek Johnson. Later. Cheers, y'all.